everybody. Hello there. All the phantoms listening in. I hope you're nestled into a sleep sack, whether it's your bed or out in the woods camping. Sleep sack. I like that. I think that's something that babies wear. (laughs) Probably. I'm like, what the hell is a sleep sack? Sounds nice, though. It does look really nice. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hello. And I'm Sabrina. And we're here for another episode. We are here. I have made a discovery this past week. I hate that I'm now someone who brings up TikTok in every (laughs) conversation. But I learned that there is a name, there's a term for people like me who constantly talk about just wanting to go into the woods and live my little life amongst the fairies and the creatures and grow my own food and basically create my own compound. What are you called? It's called cottage core. Oh. Yeah, I'm a cottage core person. Wait, that's kind of fun. It's really fun. And that side of TikTok, everyone jokes, everyone, like I'm part of TikTok. (laughs) I'm not. I'm just a watcher. I don't participate in the community. I do feel like you are part of it, though, because you do send me a lot of TikToks. I'm like, oh, you know I send you such a good one. You're so in the know. (laughs) It is what it is. So Nick and I, we drove home from Palm Springs today, and we were listening to Dak Shepard's Armchair Expert episode with Alanis Morissette Mm. and she is just so well-spoken and also so smart. She brought up this thing about how there's no such thing as dumb people and there's no such thing as only smart people because everyone is intelligent in their own way, right? So like you can have a physical intelligence. So a lot of like sports players are really spatially aware and that intelligence is unparalleled to other people like I don't have that you know Mm -hmm. and so we each have our own intelligence but it doesn't mean we're smart or dumb we have our areas of expertise well I will say that I have noticed in myself that the times when I'm like god I'm so stupid it's really 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 dependent on how much sleep I've had so if I'm the least bit sleep deprived I will be so like right now I can't even finish that (laughs) sentence because no words are even appearing in my brain. It just is. I do think there some brilliance does come out of sleep deprivation. Like the loopy side effect of that can cause genius creative ideas. Got to figure out how to tap into that because it's not what's happening over (laughs) here, but I'm happy to hear that you believe it could. Also, I want to re-listen to that because you just said something and you sounded exactly like the stepmother in Cinderella story, the Hillary Duff one. Who's that? Now I gotta look up. Do you remember? She's the one that always sun tanned in, in the bed and wore the goggles and had the bad tan line. Oh, Jenna Jennifer Coolidge. She played <laughs> Fiona. <laughs> yes, yes, from Legally Blonde. You just sounded just like her. What's something that she says? I wanna try it again. I don't know. <laughs> remember in Legally Blonde, she says you look like the 4th of July. I'm just getting really shy and nervous. I don't want to try it on the microphone anymore. <laughs> well, pra- you'll practice it and you'll come back to us next week. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Oh, gosh. That was great. Anyway, what else is new? So you you were talking about the armchair expert with Dak Shepard and Alanis Morissette. And you know who else I am just so intrigued with because every time she speaks, she's so well-spoken and so just like very fascinating like you're just so or i am personally so tuned in and like hanging on every single word that she says and all of her movements who is it lady gaga i love watching her speak stephanie what's her real name 
It starts with a G, like Giordetti or something like that. I love her. She's captivating. Germanota. That was it. I was close. I was pretty close for not knowing it yeah. and I probably have only seen seen it in print twice. So look at that. I may not know English, <laughs> but I do recall half of a last name. Useless information. <laughs> You're so pop culture intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Except I'm not. You are. You're way more than I am. It's only because Gen Z is teaching me everything right now. <laughs> oh, okay. So I feel like I'm a little bit behind in the times just because I haven't been listening to so many podcasts just during quarantine because I haven't had a commute. But I just finished Root of Evil, oh, which is yes. about the Black Dahlia and the Hodel family. Oh, yeah. It is shocking. Yeah. I like, was finding, I was just like, I'm going to go on a walk because I want to listen to this. And so I was just going on walks this past week, long walks, just to listen to these episodes. And it's, I, every step of the way, you're just blown away by it. And basically, if you don't know what it is, it's a podcast by the granddaughters of the suspected Black Dahlia murderer. What was his name? Like Robert Hodel or something like that? George Hodel? George. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so wild. Essentially, these granddaughters... They come together, and a lot of the family members had long suspected that he was responsible for killing mm-hmm. Elizabeth Short. It had been long suspected in the, their family that this grandfather, this the patriarch of their whole family, mm-hmm. had been this evil sort of surgeon and had taken advantage of his position and was so conceited and essentially a sociopath and was responsible for ruining so many people's lives. No, and he like ruined the lives of his children. And like yes. the the daughters interview their aunts and uncles and just seeing how they've overcome those obstacles and those traumas and like have their heads screwed on right. Like it's just it was tragic but beautiful to see that they can come together as a family and still I know love and support one another. So there's all this evidence that is presented in all of these arguments that are really convincing throughout the podcast, which essentially lead you to say, yes, he definitely is the murderer. But Mm -hmm. the fact is, is the case happened, what, in like the 1930s, 1940s? Yeah. It was a long time ago. And so- And George Hodel's dead now. Yeah. There's not enough, I don't think, evidence or obviously a confession to- But- there was that one episode where they talked about how the police had wiretapped the house and there were like multiple mm-hmm. conversations mm-hmm. where George Hodel was like, say I did kill her. And then he like would say without yep. confessing. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. Everyone needs to listen to it. It's it was so, so good. good. And OK. And there's the one episode because he was a horrible, horrible man. Not only did he abuse his children, he also like basically sold out off his children for sex with other high appointed officials and important people. And it reminded me so much of the Epstein documentary that's on Netflix. Like there were just so many parallels of these people who are like, you know, take their position and just like manipulate everyone around them and don't even care about them. Which is so disturbing because those are two examples of cases that we know. Like that's yeah. that's what we know that was exposed and that is now a part of public knowledge. Mm-hmm. But imagine that, like, what is the percentage of people that actually get caught or people that are so manipulative and so smart when it comes to the system and working their way around things to the point where they never get caught? Most people yeah. are never going to be run as big of an organization as Jeffrey Epstein. I know. So it's disgusting to think of how much it probably 
happens every day that will never be resurfaced. It breaks my heart. Oh, it does. I do have another <gasps> podcast recommendation for oh, you, Oh, please though. tell. It was recommended to me by my friend Chris, and I started it, and I'm so into it. It's called Wind of Change, and it's kind of conspiracy theory-esque, but essentially it is about a journalist is essentially conducting a new investigation based on a rumor he had heard when he had this clearance badge within the government. I believe it was with the CIA. And he had heard a rumor that the CIA had actually written a song called Wind of Change, which was then recorded and sold to many, many, many people and is a globally uh, very popular song. Uh, They sold it to this metal band, this rock band from Germany. And Mm. at the time, it's believed that the CIA did that as sort of like an undercover propaganda tool to encourage the change to sweep through Europe and the Soviet Union. And at the time, the Berlin Wall was coming down and all of this stuff. And so it's basically trying to uncover, did the CIA work with this band to then create this anthem of change and revolution? Or is this just complete bullshit and it's just a rumor that went around all of these government agencies. Wait, that's so interesting. It's really interesting because it's so back and forth. Like at one point you're like, this is absolutely loony. Like (laughs) no way. This is so conspiracy theory. And then the next time you're like, oh my God, they did that with that other thing. So why wouldn't they be able to do that with this? Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Gonna listen to that next. Yeah, it's good. Speaking of podcasts, this is a podcast and (laughs) we're here to do one thing, which is tell you ghost stories. Yeah. So this week, we decided to do haunted music venues, mm-hmm. which the we did this, right, for a live show? I think our Nashville live show, yeah, we focused on music. Right, because it was very topical for Nashville music. You made me panic for a moment. I was like, oh, God, have I already written about what I just wrote <laughs> No. What if we just one day just redo an episode we've already done and see if anyone notices? Should redo all of them. I don't like <laughs> listening back. I don't listen back. I don't. I just don't. I'm going to hire a professional to redo my part. I'm going to cast <laughs> myself. <laughs> cast yourself. Oh, my gosh. You'll be playing the role of Corinne. Make sure to forget what you're Everything. saying in the middle of your sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but just have fun with it. Laugh a lot. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we're doing music venues. I, I don't think there was a particular reason of why we picked this. It was just in our Excel. No, we just a while ago, we said, let's do it. And this week it popped up. Should I go? Yes. As I was searching music venues, I was like, okay, I feel like a lot of people instantly go to Bobby Mackey's, which is the place that I covered when we were in Nashville. And that's like the common, the one that comes up all the time. And so a lot of venues very similar to that were coming up. And I was like, well, I want to do something a little different. And so I went on a wild web search, which I love to do. (laughs) And I ended up finding this place called St. Catherine's Court. And it's this manor house that was originally built sometime in the medieval ages. And it was a priory grange or just like farmland of sorts for the monks of Bath Abbey. And it was built adjacent to the Church of St. Catherine, which is where its name comes from, in Bath, England. And it was leased out to people when it was unoccupied by the monks until 1540 when Henry VIII enacted an edict to disband monasteries, priories, convents, and friaries in England, Wales, and Ireland. Meaning that it was like they no longer were allowed to exist. There were a lot of people who were murdered during this time, a lot of people in religious positions that were murdered during this time. And so because of that, the 
St. Catherine's Court was basically just like left empty and all the monks fled. And it was at that time that Henry took St. Catherine's Court for himself and decides to give the manor to his tailor, John Malt. And he goes, John, you can have this beautiful, gorgeous manor out in Bath, England, in the beautiful countryside, under one condition. Henry VIII said that, John, you have to adopt my illegitimate daughter, Ethel Rada, take her on as your own, and then you can live in this house. That's a really bizarre request. Yes. But obviously, John was like, uh, yes, I want this beautiful manor. I will absolutely adopt your daughter. She's cool. She can live with me. That's fine. All's good. I mean, you're not going to say no to the king. And also, it's a beautiful house. It's very sad for his daughter, but I think that was common during this time. A lot of kings had illegitimate kids, and they were not treated very well. It's like Game of Thrones with Jon Snow. Oh, poor John. I know. After John Malt died, Ethelreda, which is the daughter of King Henry VIII, inherited the manor as her own, and then it was passed to her husband when she passed away, and her husband got remarried and had a child named John Harrington, who I only tell you his name because, Corinne, you will love this. John Harrington invented the first flush toilet. Ooh, Mr. John. (laughs) A man after your heart because of hygiene. I love him already. (laughs) He couldn't be more different than Bigfoot, but, uh, (laughs) you know. There's room for more than one love in my heart. (laughs) So eventually in 1591, St. Catherine's Court was sold to John Blanchard. Under his ownership, the home fell into a state of disrepair and basically was left to decay. And it was passed on, bought and sold amongst a lot of other elite families and then slowly returned to its former glory and was expanded upon. There was an orangery built, a library, the house was renovated, the church was renovated, and the house and gardens were listed on the Register of Historic Parks and Gardens of Special Historic Interest in England. So it's obviously quite grand and very cherished in England. And quite interestingly, the manor was then bought by the actress Jane Seymour, who is famous for being one of the original Bond girls, in 1984. So Jane had first seen the manor while filming a movie there in the winter of 1982, and she immediately fell in love with it. The house was dark and moody, and the leafless vines were creeping up the exterior, and she was like, this looks really gothic and very vibey, and I feel good energy coming from it. And it's one of the few English manors that still retained its own church and barn and private cottages. Wait, where is this? In Bath, England. Okay. I just had to... Okay. What? Quick side, my brother and I have been watching Listing Impossible, which is a new show where realtors go in Los Angeles and find properties that aren't selling and help or try to help the owner sell. And there was this one episode where I forgot that we were in England in this and I was like, oh my gosh, was this the house? But in LA, there's this huge mansion. It's super gothic style. I think it's like $200 million and a billionaire couple lives there and the woman is a she is a practicing wiccan so she's basically a billionaire witch that lives in this gothic cathedral castle like place and i my brother and i were immediately like this is our dream (laughs) (laughs) wait i want to look into it it reminds me of i think it was Katy perry who bought this massive monastery in los angeles wow and remodeled it into a home Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. All right. You keep telling your story. I'm going to look up Katie <laughs> Okay. So Jane Seymour sees the house and she's like, I love this. I want it. But the only issue was that there was another offer on the manor and it had been accepted. But the current owner met with Jane, her husband, David, 
Flynn and then their daughter, Katie Flynn, and was like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm rescinding this offer on this other family who tried to buy this house, and I'm going to give it to you and your family, Jane, because according to the owner, that the manor was always occupied by a redhead or a Catherine, and upon seeing David and Jane's daughter, Katie, who's a redhead, also a Catherine, who falls into both categories of the this like legend of the house. He's like, this is fate. You are the people who are supposed to own this home. So he gave it to them, sold it to them. Wow. Mm-hmm. And also Henry VIII's third wife was also named Jane Seymour. So it felt very serendipitous. That really is just right place, right time. Oh, yeah. Right family name passed down to you. And get this, Corinne, you're going to freak. Jane okay. Seymour and her husband bought the manor for 350,000 euros. In 1984, so I looked it up, that's about 840,000 euros today, or $950,000 US dollars. So it's under a million dollars for this historic manor in the countryside of England. My brain is literally glitching. Like, is th- did timelines slip for a moment? Because that's not accurately priced. Right? How's that for you, cottage core? Uh, dream! <laughs> dream. I'm in a plant a bunch of wildflowers for my pollinators and dance through the field with all my fairies and toads. I bet there are lots of fairies there. But then, okay, then the kicker is that they ended up spending about 3 million euros to refurbish the home and then do all the renovations and everything that had kind of been left for them. Wow. So it was a little bit of a headache. But if you didn't want to furnish it, if you just wanted to live in it empty or in like with your very modern furniture, then, you know, under a million dollars is Good deal. What have I been doing in Los Angeles? I don't know. Should we move to England? I'm down. Take this job overseas. We can do that very easily. We could. We could. <laughs> really good. And we'd be in the same place, which would be great. But okay, so I won't go too much more into the history and the architecture of the building, but I really highly suggest, and Corinne, I feel like you will do this while I continue my story, search for St. Catherine's Court Architectural Digest because they have photos of what Jane Seymour and her husband did to the manor and how they decorated it. And it's stunning and so beautiful. And I don't know, that gives me a lot of pleasure just looking at people's homes and how they decorate it. So it's very stunning if you want to look at it. Okay. And now I'm like, you're probably like, Sabrina, this is all cool. But like, what does this have to do with music venues? I know you've been asking it this entire time. Wait, sorry, I have to interrupt you. I did exactly what you told me to do. And I went to architecturaldigest.com and I found Jane Seymour English Manor. They have the best slip and slide hill. It's funny. It's very clear you're, you're, you have a summer mindset going on right now. <laughs> slip and slide? I, I remember when I first moved to LA just because I came from New Jersey, which obviously we have the winters and we loved sledding. And I remember when I first came out here, I was going on a run. And I was like, oh my God, that's probably the best hill for sledding. And it took me so long to realize that People in Los Angeles never get to go sledding down those beautiful hills. No, there's never snow on those hills. But thank you for giving me a different perspective. Now they're wonderful slip and slide hills. <laughs> Back to what the heck does this have to do with music venues? I'll tell you. So Jane and her husband noticed the acoustics inside the ballroom were unlike anything they'd heard before. So they purposely left the ballroom pretty bare. Like there was a grand piano and then that was really it. And they started renting it out as a recording studio. So, Corinne, we can go there and record our podcast and have great acoustics. Oh, my gosh. That is a dream just to be there. And then we probably will have ghosts 
whispering to us and telling us to do weird things in our dreams and messing with our audio, which we already have, but it will be amplified times 10 at St. Catherine's Court. So this is where all the ghost stories begin. So it's 1995 and the band Radiohead is on a national tour. And I'm sure you're familiar with Radiohead because they're, you know, a very popular rock and roll band from the 90s. And Tom York, who's the main vocalist and songwriter of the band, was spending so much time of that tour working on his next album. And apparently they spent two years on tour with their first album. And their most popular song was Creep on that album. And people were kind of like, oh, this is a one hit wonder. And Tom York was like, okay, we're going to get our name out there. We're going to go on tour for two years, just tour as much as possible, get people to know us. Unfortunately, that tour, I mean, imagine spending two years on a tour bus. Like that's isolating and exhausting. Yeah. And those are all feelings that Tom York was feeling. And he was just feeling this growing sense of detachment from the world. And to add on to it, it's 95, 96, and technology is developing and growing. The computer, phones, cell phones. Tom York feels like the whole world is detaching. And so he starts writing this album kind of that's all based on these themes of detachment and technology and isolation. And you'll probably remember this album as OK Computer, or for people who are Radiohead fans, you'll remember it as OK Computer. In 1997, they end up wrapping up their tour, or maybe it was the end of 1996. They end up wrapping up the tour and they were like, okay, we're going to go right back into the studio. Tom has basically written an entirely new album. Let's get back in the studio and record. And they spent a few weeks recording, but they were just like, this feels like a whole other tour. It's such a mundane experience. We're in this like gray room recording all day. There's no sunlight. It's just sucking the soul out of ourselves. So Tom was like, we need to get inspired. This is uninspiring. We need to change up our scenery. We need to do something different. I'm not totally sure what their interactions with Jane Seymour were prior to this, but at some point, Jane Seymour basically hands her keys to Tom York and is like, go stay at St. Catherine's Court and do what you need to do. Stay as long as you want. Just make sure you you remember to feed the cat. And so that's, that's that. Tom York and the whole band of Radiohead and their uh, engineers and probably their producers all uprooted their lives and moved into St. Catherine's Court, into Jane Seymour's home in Bath, England. And they turned the house into a studio. So they lived there for two months. They lived, they worked, they ate, they recorded, they wrote together. They would just pick a new place every day, basically, in the house to record. And they ended up doing all these cool experimental things like using non-traditional instruments and layering all these different tracks. Tom York commented on how when they stopped playing music, the home was filled with pure silence. And even when they opened the windows, there was a complete and almost unnatural silence. There was not even the chirping of birds. So in total, the manor has nine bedrooms, six bathrooms, two kitchens, a library, a ballroom, a living room, and so much more. And they often set up to record in the ballroom and set up their control room in the library just next door. Every member of the band recalled magic happening in that house. It's the best music they ever made. But apparently after some time living in the house, the house began to turn on them a little bit and something or someone started rewinding and turning their tape machines on and off. And a lot of the bandmates started having nightmares, specifically Tom York started having nightmares and he would be alone you know, experiencing this abnormal silence as he quote was quoted saying, and he remembers hearing ghostly voices speak and whisper into his ear. 
and they would always tell him to do things. More times than not, he was able to ignore them or just like, you know, think he's going a little crazy. But then it started kind of transitioning into his dreams. And he would have these really intense dreams where the ghosts would be talking to him and he'd wake up feeling the need to do the things that the ghosts were telling him to do. So one morning he woke up after the night of hearing all these voices and apparently the voices were telling him to cut his hair and he woke up determined to cut his hair. So he grabbed whatever he could find in his room, which were little scissors on a pen knife. And he just began cutting his own hair. And he was recounting this experience in an article that I read. And he said it was horrible. He kept nicking his head. So he had like all these little cuts on his head and his hair, was his scalp was bleeding. And so he just like gave up kind of halfway through. So he just like, you know, patches were cut and other patches were not. And he goes downstairs and the rest of his bandmates are sitting at the kitchen table eating. And Tom York walks in with a bloody head, patches of hair everywhere. And they all just stop and stare at him like he's lost his marbles. And they were like, dude, are you okay? And then Phil Selloway, the drummer, just took York downstairs and then shaved his head for him. Looking back on it, Tom reflected that he had no sense of reality at all while in the house. And it was a sense of information overload and constant paranoia, which he felt in connection to the ever-growing world of technology, but was further aggravated by the energy at St. Catherine's Court. And he's like, we went there to, you know, get a change of pace, but it almost aggravated everything that he was feeling because they were isolated even more out in the middle of nowhere in this beautiful manner where there was this unnatural silence that like there were no birds chirping. That is so freaky. And also, here's another aside to what could have happened to him. So if he had voices saying if all of these spirits were encouraging him to go grab scissors, go grab a sharp object Mm -hmm. and put it to his head, that doesn't mean that that's how it would have ended with just him shaving his head or cutting his hair. It could have been an encouragement to grab something that would potentially harm him and then either convince him to take it one step further or the spirit itself doing something and manipulating that object, especially because one thing that we know is that spirits tend to be able to manipulate electronics and metal best. And so I'm assuming that the shaving shears, whatever he was using, were was metal. Yeah. Or here's a more positive twist on it. Okay. Our good friend John Harrington, the guy who invented the flush toilet, clearly thought hygiene was very important. And maybe Tom York, you know, he spends two years on tour. He's not really grooming himself well. Then he moves to a house out in the middle of nowhere in England. And the ghosts are like, dude, Tom, like, we got to give you a haircut. And it's just John Harrington, who's your soulmate, who loves a cleanly man. Do you think that John Harrington is the paranormal version of Jonathan Van Ness? (laughs) clear eye and he's like "Mm -mm, you are not trimming your hair and you are not using a green stick this is all wrong (laughs) i would so watch that paranormal show right (laughs) so good so but he wasn't the only one experiencing all these voices and sounds and oftentimes they would listen back to their recordings and there would be weird sounds and weird voices and yeah sure they were doing experimental music a little bit and you know experimental instruments but the sound that they were hearing were not those. They were definitely somewhat paranormal. I couldn't verify this, but some people on Reddit were saying that they left a lot of it in. So <gasps> no if way. you did a, a really in-depth look at the audio files, you would be able to find them. But I don't know how we get those. Eric, 
Foster, Max. From Upfire Digital. <laughs> from Upfire Digital. Will you guys let us know? Do we start paying Eric's team to go dissect every single song? I mean, our editors just have such good ears that I feel like they would be able to hear it. Yeah. Someone must have done that on the internet already. I'm sure if we look deep enough, if we go into Reddit, we'll find someone who has done the work for us already, right? Yes, I think so. I mean, I was doing, I was trying to find some and I couldn't find it. So it was just kind of a conspiracy of sorts. Mm, But anyway, they, yeah, so all of this was happening, lots of paranormal. They end up finishing their album after two months they talk about how they were plagued by the spirits. Lights would turn on and off. There would be sounds of voices coming from rooms, which were immediately found empty. And according to the old estate manager who used to work there with Jane Seymour, he says that there were three known ghosts at St. Catherine's Court. Then the first was a lady in blue who appeared one day in the gardens and startled a gardener working. And what happened <laughs> next is very unclear, but the gardener fled the grounds and never returned to work. She was just a cottage core lady in blue. <laughs> she was you. <laughs> it was my past life. It was a weird glitch in the matrix where Corinne traveled through time. Oh my gosh, what if this happens right after this? Wear a blue outfit, go to bed. Oh my gosh, where's my blue gown? I need to find it. <laughs> the second ghost is apparently a man who tattled the location of the monks and giving up their location led to their murders. And this man apparently has spent years of his life And now the afterlife, feeling very guilty for turning them in and is wandering the grounds. But I feel like it's hard to verify that that might just be legend. This is one of those points where I feel semi-conflicted because at one part of me is like, yeah, how dare you? You should be spending eternity walking the grounds. But I think it's hard to verify if that's actually the history of this ghost because there's no recorded conversations with him. I think it could just be. I don't know. Anyway, the last ghost which you'll love, is a ghost dog. And the ghost dog is often heard barking when there are no other dogs on the property or in the manor. Oftentimes will be felt brushing up against your legs. So just to wrap this up, Radiohead's album, OK Computer, came out in 1997, and they were all of a sudden hailed as the heroes of rock and roll because apparently during the 90s, people were saying that rock and roll was dying, and then Radiohead comes out with OK Computer, and it's like, oh my gosh, no, this is the new version of rock and roll. Oh, Radiohead, you guys are the heroes of rock and roll. Anyway, Tom ultimately decided he didn't want the attention and thought they had already mastered the perfect album. Why would they try again? So Radiohead, as we knew it then, has never recorded another album since. But Tom York has written some music and recorded, I think, wow. since then. As for St. Catherine's Court, Jane Seymour was somewhat forced into selling the home in 2007 because, as it goes, Seymour was quite the partier and would host endless parties at the house. She even acquired a 24-hour liquor license and entertainment license for her home, meaning that she could throw parties all day, every day in her house. Respect. Yeah. And so while she might have been enjoying herself, the neighbors were not and <laughs> ended up calling her the neighbor from hell, took her to court. Even though Jane Seymour won the court battle, she ended up selling the home in 2007 to an unknown buyer. And the house is now available for rentals and weddings. And so maybe if you want to go there and see the ghosts and have them whisper in your ear as you sleep, you can... Rent it. I want to buy it. Or buy it. (laughs) Give me the number. Put me in contact. My people will call your people. I can't wait to hear from your people. (laughs) AKA you on a phone call. It's just me and my Jennifer Coolidge voice. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh gosh. Wow. This is like really a fairy tale 
mansion. And mm-hmm. it's so I mean, it's old and it totally looks like it would be haunted, but it's just kind of insane to think of all of the people and all of the livelihood and energy and different types of personalities and creation and artistry that has happened there. And the ghosts are all just kind of watching. Yeah. That would be a really poppin' place to live as a ghost. There's always a show. I mean, yeah, during that time with Jane Seymour, it probably was a lot of fun, lots of parties, a lot of people to haunt, a lot of cool music to add your voice to history if you wanted. But now I wonder if it's probably a lot more quiet. Yeah. I'm curious too, thinking back to the part of the story where you were talking about how Tom was really out of touch with reality and just time and feelings and everything was just discombobulated. And it makes me wonder, was this some sort of time warp sort of situation where the energy was manipulating Tom in the space and he kind of lost control? Or Mm. was there something in him that was tapped open, something that triggered this other part of his brain or his spirit to essentially move from what we have constructed as like time and space and and normal behavior and thinking. And he just kind of joined this fluid energy for a moment. Wow. I believe that. I feel like creative people are oftentimes very in tune and can be very in tune with that if they allow themselves to. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to be stacking that real estate in all the photos. (laughs) And also the neighborhood, because if there are neighbors, there could be other mansions for sale. Wait, fun fact. My coworker, apparently her mom like texted her a while back and was like, apparently if you buy a certain part of land or piece of land in some place in England, you can become a lord or a lady just by owning that property. Oh. And so her mom texted her and was like, should I buy a piece of land in your dog's name? And then we can call her Lady Teak and her dog would be a lady. That's so cute. So maybe you can become a lady if you can't buy St. Catherine's Court. I mean, how much is is it? 50 bucks? 50 bucks? Or is it more? And what are the property taxes like? (laughs) I've got some questions. I bet it's more expensive than we want. You can buy a plot of land in Scotland starting at $45 per square foot. So if you want to buy one square foot. I could totally afford one square foot, maybe two. And you can become a lord or a lady. Oh, look, here we come. (laughs) Sabrina, I know what I'm getting you for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm going to change my name on all of my documents. (laughs) Forget getting married to Nick. You were just Lady Sabrina. (laughs) I'm going to make Nick call me that from now on. I love it. All right. What did you pick? Okay. So this is kind of weird because you and I did really, really similar stories. Oh. I, too, picked a venue that was for recording music rather than playing. Wow. We are on the same page. We really are. Often. So this is actually pretty close to you because it's in Los Angeles. So at 2451 Laurel Canyon Boulevard in Los Angeles... There is a beautiful mansion. It was built back in 1918. And just a year after the home was built, Harry Houdini, the famous illusionist, he rented a cottage right down the road and he used that space to practice his tricks and live his life and do whatever. And it's thought that at one point he had actually rented out a portion of this house for himself or for his wife to live in. So he was in and around the space. When Nick and I were looking at wedding venues, we 
happened upon the Houdini estate and you can people get married there. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It's very expensive. I need to look it up. I don't even know what it what it looks like. It's a weird looking place because it's just like very eccentric, sure. but very cool. Oh, I bet. Houdini is one of the, the famous people to live nearby, but there have been plenty of well-known people in and around this area. And during the 1959 Laurel Canyon fires, this mansion, the original mansion that was built in 1918, it was actually destroyed. And it's thought that possibly Houdini's cottage that he had stayed in next door was also destroyed because now the cottage is no longer there and the lot is seemingly vacant. But this mansion, which is called The Mansion, which is like, wow, you get to be the mansion. The one and only. The one and only. The mansion was rebuilt, and now I believe there are 10 bedrooms, so it is huge. And underneath the mansion is something kind of unique. There is a basement, which just really doesn't exist in most Los Angeles homes, especially modern homes, because of earthquakes. So in the basement, if you go in, it is extremely dark, and the basement is about 15, 20 feet high, and it is essentially chiseled and built right into the mountain. And supposedly, there are massive tunnels that connect this house to others. And it's thought that at one time, it connected both to Harry Houdini's property and a bunch of other properties because it was used during the Prohibition era to transport alcohol, which is so cool. So cool. I also was just thinking about Houdini's mansion and how I really hope there's tons of trap doors and like strange entrances. And I love that there are tunnels connecting to other places. Yeah. That's exactly what I imagine. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting too, because it's like Harry Houdini, this wasn't his mansion, but this was just next door to where he had resided. And yet it still has some of that like magical and spookiness and darkness, all of these running tunnels. But people who've gone into the basement here have said that it's Even though it has these historical factors to it and reasoning behind some of the way that it was built and tunnels and having things shut off, the vibes in it are just so dark and so creepy that people are too freaked out and often opt to not spend any time in that portion of the mansion. Scary. But also if you're at the mansion, I'm sure there's no – you don't want to be spending time at the basement. There's plenty of other things to see. So the original owner of the home, the home was built – or this man. His name was Errol Flynn. He was an actor. And so the home has really just been shared by a bunch of actors and artists and people within the industry. And it's been passed through many owners. One of the owners of the mansion more recently was the music producer, Rick Rubin. And Rick saw an opportunity to record music in the home, just like in your story. And so he was like, ah, oh, this is a great space. I can invite people in to collaborate, really live, vibe with one another, strengthen their communication skills, and really just be on the same page. And so he opened up his space, not only for people to move in if they wanted to, but also built a recording studio within this mansion. And so people were coming in and, and recording new songs and getting ideas, producing entire albums. Some bands did two albums at once. It was pretty wild. Whoa. And the mansion is cited as being the recording studio where many, many bands and artists have recorded their very best songs and their very best albums. Some of the artists who have recorded in this studio are Maroon 5, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Marilyn Manson, Lord, Major Lazer, just so, so many bands, huge names, but not all of the musicians are so willing to spend the night because the mansion 
is haunted. This is the haunted mansion. The hauntings reportedly started back in 1918, so just one year after this mansion was built, when the son of a furniture owner pushed his lover from the balcony. And I don't know any more about that story or what exactly happened, but essentially the rumor is is this man was somehow enraged or or nervous about his lover and needed to get rid of his lover. And he was in a gay relationship in 1918 and pushed his lover off the balcony, presumably killing him. This really planted the seed for the energy and the space to encourage paranormal activity and just some negativity at times and just manipulating the overall energy within the mansion. I'm going to tell you about some of the experiences the bands have had in the mansion, in the haunted mansion. Now I just want to go to Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd love to go to that. We should go. We should do a podcast trip and say we're doing research. (laughs) (laughs) No one tell the IRS. (laughs) We are. We are doing research. The band Slipknot was one of the bands that moved into the mansion to record their 2004 album titled Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. And so the band Slipknot, they hadn't been working together for the previous year. They had all kind of taken a break. They're like, let's go work on our own independent projects. We'll reconvene when it's best. And so after about a year, they decided like, yes, we're eager to come back and create something amazing together. And so the nine band members, they move in with Rick Rubin into this mansion and they're ready to create their greatest album yet. But what they didn't realize was that they weren't the only ones in this house. They were living amongst the dead. The singer, whose name is Corey Taylor, and I will just give everyone a heads up that I'm going to be saying a lot of names of musicians in this episode, and there are a lot of names that I'm probably going to butcher. And no, I didn't look up all 30 and memorize how to say their names, because frankly, I don't care. (laughs) It is what it is. People have mispronounced my name. Honestly, especially as someone with a name like yours, and the amount of times people don't know how to pronounce it, I think it's fair. If I had a dollar for every time someone emailed me back and said, Dear Connie, <laughs> I'd be freaking rich. And the amount of times that people thought my first name was Deanna when they asked for my last name and I say Deanna Broga. Hi, Deanna. <laughs> I'm like, no, I know what my last name is. Thank you very much. Oh, man. So the singer Corey Taylor of Slipknot, he later went on to write a book and his book is called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Heaven, which is such a great book title. Yeah, I like that a lot. And in this book, Corey recalled a few odd things that happened while recording at the mansion. And so there is record, like written record, that Corey himself wrote about his time at the mansion. And his other bandmates have also done interviews talking about the things that happened to them while they were there. So Corey said, quote, The thing about ghosts is when they manifest, they take on two different forms. They either take on the human ethereal form or they take on the form of an orb, round, white spheres that you can sometimes see in the air. And so Corey wrote this description because this is what he had learned. This was his exposure to ghosts from his time in the mansion. And one night, Corey said that when he was getting ready to go to bed, his bedroom thermostat turned itself from 65 to 75, which is interesting because it went up in temperature rather than the other way around, which seems to be the standard. And Corey saw this happen. And so he grabs his camera and he takes a picture. And in the photo, he sees that there are two orbs right next to the thermostat. And so thinking, okay, well, this must just be a flare on the camera. 
he takes another one immediately after. And there was nothing in the camera. So the orbs had only been there right as the thermostat had changed. So he's looking at this and he's like, oh, gosh, this room, what's going on? Like looking up the photograph. And then within a moment, the batteries that he had just put into the camera earlier that day drained and the camera went dead. This is definitely more of the benign sort of experiences that people have had. So Corey and his other bandmates, they lived there for about six months and they continued to have a ton of run-ins with the spirits who haunt this home in this recording studio. So Corey said that he had so many stories from his time living in the home that these stories, he just didn't even want to talk about them and they would raise the hair on the back of your neck if he did revisit them. They were just so spooky and so just unsettling. He and his percussionist, Sean Crahan, they shared two adjacent rooms. So Sean was in another room. It was like a Jack and Jill type of vibe. And that's where they stayed for the two months that they were living in the mansion. So they were essentially like extra roommates because they were set aside and and almost, they basically shared a wall and almost shared space. And so together they experienced quite a few creepy things because they were so close in proximity. And in the middle of the two rooms, there was a phone that would be shared by the two rooms. And on the phone, Jack, was a note. This note is so creepy. Oh, my god! The note said, in case of paranormal activity, dial. And then it had a number written next to it. And then it said, or 911. So I guess depending on the severity of your paranormal experience, you either had to call the cops or call this other number. And I have no idea if the band had ever called that number to see. Oh, my God. I'm so curious. I know, right? Who's, is it like a psychic? I don't know. So yeah, someone who could just be essentially called in as the emergency mediator. Enters through the tunnels. You called. Oh, Sabrina, you freaked me out. I had to pull my feet off of the ground. Ew, I know that we're talking about, you know, a person that would just be coming in, but for some reason I just pictured them like, like, I can't like just like the, the second the phone rang, it rang on the other side of the tunnel wall kind of thing. Fuck. Like they were waiting. No. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is what nightmares are made of. This is why I'm friends with you. Because <laughs> you scare me. Oh, what a good friendship we have. <laughs> the drummer in the band, his name is Joey Jordanson. He also had a disturbing experience. He was in the bottom floor of the home. He was in the basement section. And while he was down there, he felt something come over him and pass through him. It was like an energy just kind of moving in and around him. And he said that the energy seemed to be a bit sexual and he got a little nervous and then he felt as if he was being touched inappropriately. And he was so unnerved by this experience with this ghost, whether it was a succubus or what, but he was like, I am never going into that space again. And so he just avoided the basement like it was the plague. He just was like, nope, I'm not going down there. Yeah, I don't blame him. That's so scary. So scary. And also the first two weeks that he lived in the mansion, Joey's bedroom door would open between the hours of 9 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. So it'd be be mid-morning, basically. Weird. Yes. And so it only stopped after the two weeks because Joey started putting a brick by the door to block the door from being opened. And Joey said that sometimes he would just be standing there and then he would feel like he was being pushed. And he would look around to be like, okay, who is the prankster here? And there would be absolutely nobody around him. What? And each morning, this kind of when you were talking about Tom walking into the 
into the room with his hair all funky. It kind of reminded me of this because uh, Slipknot, they said that each morning they would all congregate in the studio. So they'd go into the one recording studio. So they took inspiration from all of the house and the grounds and could write and do whatever anywhere. But the actual recording happened in the studio section of the home and they would all congregate there every single morning. And before they would get going on their work, they would all discuss the strange activity that happened the night before. Oh, I love that. I know. We, so, okay, this is, this makes me want to, not that we're artists by any means, but this makes me want to, you and I go on a vacation, stay in a haunted place and record every morning about like our haunted happenings. I thought you were going to say, stay in different spaces and then come and back in the morning and tell each other. I was like, no, no, no way. We'll am stay I- together. Yeah. I was like, I am not going to sleep unless we are back to back. It's kind of like ghost hunting. I basically just, I thought I came up with something new, but it's existed for years, decades, <laughs> even <laughs> centuries. But we'd podcast about it. How fun would that be? That would be fun. I'd be terrified the whole time, but sure. To end on what happened with Slipknot, essentially, there was enough that happened to the band in the six months that they were there that Corey said, quote, it's so weird. I don't even like talking about it. And let me remind you that the band Slipknot is a metal band. These guys are no stranger to the metal scene and all that comes with it and tough mentalities and all that, but they were thoroughly spooked from their time living and recording in the mansion. Wow. And then in 2004, System of a Down went to the mansion to record two new albums, the album Mesmerize and the album Hypnotize. And the guitarist, Darren Malakian, he said that every day around 4 p.m., his amp tubes would start acting strangely. So his equipment was being manipulated, but other than that, it seemed to be okay. But while they were down there, Rick Rubin's publicist, Heidi Robinson Fitzgerald, she was also spending quite a lot of time in the home. She was coordinating interviews. She was scheduling photo shoots. She was just like completing all the odd jobs that needs to happen to essentially get a album up and running and get the studio essentially like, I guess, credited for it or whatever. She she was a busy woman. And so she was always running around the place at that time that System of a Down was there. And so she arrived early in the morning one day before anyone else was there. And so she goes to set up and prep for that day's events. And she sits down in the dining room and she's facing towards the staircase and her back was to the entryway. And then she senses something, but she was alone in the house. And so she was really confused and it felt like someone was just behind her, like someone was there but her back was to it. And so she didn't really want to look around. And the energy was just moving closer and closer. She could just feel its sensation until it seemed like it was standing right behind her. And so she was like, okay, well, I need I need to turn around and look. And so she turns around and she sees no one. No one's behind her. No one came in the entryway. Then she turns back in the direction that she had been looking towards the stairwell. And she sees the apparition of a woman dressed in all white, walking down the stairs. And there was no window open. There were no open, there were no drafts moving through the home. But Heidi remembers the way that this woman's dress moved. It was basically blowing behind her. Like there was this phantom wind kind of, she had Beyonce wind as she moved down the stairs. Wow. And before the woman got to the bottom of the stairs, 
the woman stopped and she seemed to sense Heidi. And so she turned and just walked back up the stairs and disappeared onto the second floor of the home. Never to be seen again by Heidi, at least. There's so Um, many spirits here. So many. And it's you really just don't even know who's responsible for what because it seems like there's just a lot and that there's a lot that doesn't actually take the physical apparition form. There's a lot of- They're coming through the tunnels. Yes, you're right. The tunnels. I forgot about the tunnels already. (laughs) I'm blocking it out of my memory. (laughs) Okay. But there is one band who's recorded there and I would- I'm going to call them the bravest band. I would argue that. Because they have returned to the mansion on numerous occasions. They have recorded plenty of times here and they've stayed over. And this is the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Love them. Love them. Since 1991, the band has been utilizing the space and the hauntings to produce some of their best songs and albums and even a greatest hits album. And the band members, they all feel a little bit differently towards the paranormal activity. They're definitely aware that something's going on. But some of them, like the guitarist John Frusciante, he believes that the ghosts are friendly there. But other band members, like Chad Smith, who was the drummer, he was like, I'm going to opt for not spending the night here. I'm going to find my own place and I'll meet you in the morning for recording. Better safe than sorry. It's so interesting how they had such different experiences yeah which also makes you wonder like which rooms were they assigned to right does it have anything to do with that or is it just some people are targeted or some people are more sensitive interesting or some people are just like generally more spooked about it maybe the red hot chili peppers were actually the very first according to the research that i did the first to utilize the space for recording and they recorded their 1991 album blood sugar sex magic in the mansion And while recording, they noted the very unusual things that continued to happen while they were there, the paranormal activity. And while there, the band took many photos, photos that they were intending to use for their album or just really maybe as a way to chronicle the creation of their new album and their time all together and recording there. But in one photo, the band is standing together in the front of the house in a blob it literally looks like a blob. It's like this wispy looking orb is moving over and obstructing the view of one of the band members' faces. Whoa. The photo was not doctored. The band members insist that it is a spirit captured on film from the home. And to honor this spirit and their time in the mansion, you can easily find this photo of the spirit and the rest of the Red Hot Chili Peppers because the Red Hot Chili Peppers used this photo in their album art. They made it a part of their album. Wait. Okay. Looking, searching. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's got like a really red sort of tint over it. Oh my gosh. It looks like something that would come out underneath a microscope. I know. It looks porous. Yeah. Like dead skin almost. Yeah. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Weird. But yeah, when they were there for that shoot, for that shoot particularly, they were doing a shoot for their album cover. In all of those photos, like you see the one that they chose for their album, but Mm -hmm. apparently out of all of the photos they took that day, four of the photos showed orbs just like that. Wow. Pretty crazy. And the lead singer, Anthony Kiedis, Kiedis, oh, shoot. He said, quote, there were ghosts everywhere. So obviously it's hard. What's interesting about this is like a lot of the bands that are going through are rock and roll, they're metal. These guys are tougher guys, you know, the Mm -hmm. music and the messaging and the things that they write. 
are not meant to be soft or easily spooked. And so it's really interesting that they at least are even coming forward and saying anything at all. But it also leaves me wanting more because so many of them are just giving like, yeah, there was definitely ghosts everywhere, but they're not exactly saying all of the things that happened. Right. We're not getting a journal. This is why we need to become friends with them and have them on the podcast and get them to tell us all their secrets. Exactly. I'm down. Let's have our people call their people. (laughs) Let's call Jennifer Coolidge. Hey, can you make a phone call for me? And also, while you're at it, can you call my doctor and make me an appointment? (laughs) It's like the one thing I never want to do. Same. But to wrap up this story in this episode, I'll leave you with some final words from the lead singer, Anthony. He said, It's obvious to us that there's a real world of spirits that people just aren't tuned into. We were accepting of the fact that we were living among them. We weren't there to be obtrusive. We were there to make music and to coexist in what was more their house than ours. Ooh. And that is the haunting of the mansion. I like that. It's, yeah, the the house belongs to the goats. I know. I really love that message. And just the fact that he's like, yeah, there's something that we're just, most people will never understand or see or believe or be able to wrap their minds around. And they caught just a slightest glimpse of it in their time there. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting is my mom, I don't know how, but she she asked what we were recording and I told her. And then she said, oh, well, which one did you do? And I said, the mansion. And she knew immediately what I was talking about. Whoa. And she was like, oh my gosh, yes, that place is so haunted. And she, I should have tried to find her sources because she might have more info than me. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's clearly a very historic place in the music industry. There's that many people who've recorded there. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, just thinking about both of our stories. And then when we were in Nashville and you did Bobby Mackey's Music World, just how many recording studios are haunted? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about the amount of energy that goes into recording and how people spend 24 hours in the recording studio to try to get one song done, you know? And you're trying to tap into this creative side of your Mm -hmm. brain that might just leave something else open up there. That's so cool. I want to go visit it. I was trying to look up and see if I can go. I bet you can at least see it from the, it's on Laurel Canyon. Yeah. You can definitely drive by it at least. I'll like jump a fence, try to go in. (laughs) No, just put on, oh wait, that was your story. I was like, just put on a blue dress and walk through the ground. (laughs) Nope. That's, that's I have to do the white dress for yours. Yes. Or find the entrance to the tunnels. I'll do your Beyonce wind. I'll put on, uh, <laughs> what, what are they called? Oh my gosh, I used to know. A ghillie suit, which is like what you put on to blend in, like in a marsh or something. So I'll just look like I'm I'm blending in with the foliage, but I'll have a little leaf blower and give you the wind you need. I got you. I love that. That's a great idea. Let's do it. Come visit. Heck yeah. I, I will. Listener story time. This is from Katie, and it's called Lady Ghost in the Music Hall. Hey, ladies. I've sent so many of my experiences, and I will continue to send more and more, and I hope to hear one on your podcast someday. I work in housekeeping in a private boarding school in Utah called Wasatch Academy. It has been around since 1875, so as you can imagine, some of the buildings are quite old and, in my opinion, quite haunted. Housekeeping arrives on campus around 4 a.m. so we can get the classroom buildings clean before students start school. It can get pretty creepy cleaning a big old building in the dark morning hours, and I've had many encounters on campus, but this one I'm about to tell you was the most thrilling. One of the buildings on the campus is the music hall. This building used to be the Presbyterian Church, 
but in recent years has been converted into a music hall. The main floor consists of the original chapel full of pews and a stage and two giant classrooms for music teaching. Downstairs are girls and boys bathrooms, the housekeeping closet, and many soundproof tiny rooms with heavy glass doors. In each room is a single piano, and when you open the door to a soundproof room, the light automatically comes on. In fact, the whole building's lights are motion-censored. The students fly home for Christmas break, and at this time, housekeeping deep cleans the entire campus. This year, it was my turn to clean the music hall. So dark and early one morning, I went downstairs to the cleaning closet and got my supplies to oil the wooden pews in the chapel area. I have always been creeped out by sounds in this building, so I put in my earbuds and cranked the tunes while I got to work. About halfway through the pews, I was singing along with Katy Perry when I heard a woman singing too. I quickly ripped out one of my earbuds and listened. Sure enough, there was a woman humming or singing. I couldn't make out the words or a specific tune, and it only lasted a few seconds, but I could tell it was coming from the hallway behind the stage. I was embarrassed thinking, oh man, someone came in the back doors and busted me singing to myself. So I went to the stage door to see who busted in on me, and upon opening the door, all of the lights in the section of the building were still off. As I mentioned before, they are motion activated. So if anyone had entered, they would have turned on. Also, from the pews, I could see the front door, and I was almost positive no one had entered. Puzzled, I finished up my work, headed downstairs, and returned my cleaning supplies. And from the bottom of the stairs, I have to walk by the bathrooms to get to my cleaning closet, which are all on the left-hand side of the hall. At the end of the hall, on the right side, where the little piano rooms are with the glass doors, I start to walk past them, and I walk past the ladies' room, and I hear the faucet is on. So I think to myself, oh, there really is someone here. So I open the door, and no one's there. It is, however, ice cold inside, and the faucet is running hot water on full blast, and the mirror above the sink was fogged up completely. I turned off the sink and was starting to freak out a little. I was not sticking around in case the ghost decided to write a message on the mirror. With chills from head to toe, I ran back out into the hall, and there, at the very end of the hall, next to the cleaning closet, the light came on over one of the little piano rooms. I was terrified. There was no one there, and I would have been able to see them through the glass. I decided not to make the trip down the hall to the cleaning supply closet, and instead took everything I was carrying out of the building with me, and to this day, I will not return to that building when it is dark or by myself ever again. Thanks for your time. I love, love, love your podcast, and I listen almost every day while at work. Some days I have to wait for the sun to come up before I listen, just to be safe. Stay spooky, Katie. That's so creepy because it's one thing to just hear someone whistling or singing. And the ghost has, at that point, made itself known, right? Like the spirit is around us. And then to go full force, it feels like in paranormal activity when you might just see something out of the corner of your eye or hear a little shuffle. And that's that's enough to know. And then you juxtapose that with all of the cabinets in the kitchen just slamming open. That's what this reminds me of. It's like from zero to a hundred so quick. It's like, now I'm just going to attack the bathroom. But it's so, I mean, yeah, the bathroom part is probably the scariest. Walking in and like it being ice cold in there and then the steam, the faucet being so hot that the entire mirror is fogged yeah. up. But I do think the ghost that's there is not ill intent by any means. It just seems like a ghost that's singing and enjoys music, is singing, going through a routine, goes to the bathroom, and then goes to go play the piano. Katie just happened to interrupt it. Yeah. But not easy to to uh, experience. No, especially <laughs> bathrooms are already scary. Yeah. I, there's nothing 
that I hate more bathroom-wise than going into a movie theater bathroom when you're completely alone. Aren't those scary? (sighs) So scary. I completely agree. Well, I feel that way kind of anywhere. Going to the bathroom by myself scares me. That's why girls go to the bathroom together. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The multiple stalls. Mm -mm. See, when men go into the men's room, there's more your line of your sight. You get to see more in your line of vision. There aren't as many closed stalls. Mm-hmm. But in women's restrooms or in like family restrooms and unisex restrooms, it's all stalls. Yeah. There's a lot of points. You don't know what's hiding under there. Yep, exactly. Spooky. So spooky. I have one from Luisa. It is called Observing piano Ghost. Ooh. Hello, ladies. I'm Luisa and I live in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I've been a big fan of this podcast of yours ever since I found it by listening to Astonishing Legends. I haven't heard any other podcasts since then. Oh, Oh, wow. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Honored. Uh, I guess it's been three or four months by now, and you guys keep me company. Early on, listening to one of your Encounters episodes, if my memory doesn't fail me, it was number 53, a listener recounted a musical ghost story. I'd been thinking before that, man, I wish I had a cool story to share with them until it suddenly hit me. I do have a story and it's a musical one. I'd been playing the piano at home. I think I was around 15 at the time and I'm 29 now. And my dad and I were the only ones there. He was watching TV on the other side of the house while I was practicing. I remember starting to play My Immortal by Evanescence, teen goth as you can see. And I saw my father coming very slowly as if he were trying not to startle me. I'm going to show him how concentrated I am and I won't even look up, was the act I decided to go for. I saw him coming over and actually leaning onto the piano with his elbow and resting his forehead on his hand. He stayed there the whole time, and I knew the entirety of the song. And when I finished, I took a deep breath and I asked, Did you enjoy it? To which I immediately looked up to see his reaction. Guess what? No one was there. Was I literally putting on a show for a ghost? Oh my gosh. I ran to my dad and I asked him if he had been there and he said he hadn't. I proceeded to tell him what had happened and he, being a modern casual dad that he is, laughed it off and said something like, once again, I was imagining things. But ladies, I swear to Leia. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) Leia, did you hear it? swear to Leia, (laughs) I was not imagining things. I like to think that I was visited by a young version of my grandfather, if that's possible. He was an extremely tall man and a lovely musical person. I had a very calm and nice feeling having that ghost listening to me play. I'm pretty sure he was my number one and only fan. This is the clearest story that I have. All of the others are fuzzy. Congratulations on your hard work and your commitment to the spookiness of the world. May God bless your kind souls now and always. Kisses and goosebumps from the oh. southern hemisphere. See you on the other side, Louisa. I love that. Kisses and goosebumps. And I swear to Leia, there are so many things that I'm going to use from you, Louisa. Amazing. Great taglines. Okay, wait. I love that she had a ghost fan. I know. And I also love how just this is the perfect capture of such like an angsty, moody teen, you know, to, to mm-hmm. see your dad coming up to listen to you play and you're like, ugh. I'm not going to look up. And then you finish and you're like, how was that? Like, <laughs> It's so great. So great. Oh, my gosh. I love it. It's so fun. And I love to think, too, when she noted that 
when she thought it was her dad that he was approaching really slowly as to not like spook her or startle her or you know interrupt her i thought that that was really nice now looking back on it to think like maybe it was her grandfather a younger version or someone really musical just passing by and was like and just really quickly, I don't know if I'm allowed or if she wants me here. I'm just going to go real slow. So she has all the opportunity to just say no. What if they were listening before she even noticed them? Because the ghost was like so lost and transfixed and enjoying the music that it showed itself without really like knowing that it was doing that. Oh, my gosh. I love that. So he was the ghost was just watching kind of on its own, not trying to scare her or interrupt her. But just was so moved and yes. formed. I picture it as a little cartoon chameleon that <laughs> yes. finds something or sees something that it loves, and suddenly it turns red with oh my gosh, yes. joy becomes visible. <laughs> I love That's that. exactly what I was picturing. <laughs> Pixar, are you hiring? <laughs> Amazing. Okay, well, that was our haunted music venues, or more like haunted recording studios episode. Yes. So if you have ghost stories, please email them to us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com. We want every story, your story, your second cousin removed story, your friend from elementary school story, everything. Your story. Tell us. Please. We also have a variety of ways to just become more engaged with the podcast. You can follow us on social media. We have Twitter, we have Instagram, we have a Facebook group run by our amazing admins and moderators. Just want to give a huge shout out and thanks to them. We have a small group of moderators that are helping to curate a very safe space for 20,000 members that are in a Facebook group. So I just think that that is absolutely insane when you think about how much support and love is spread amongst that group. And that in large part is due to everything that you guys do to share and support one another. But then also a huge, huge thanks to all of our moderators on the page that are constantly sorting through and and making sure that there's nothing that would be really harmful to anyone on there and they're volunteering to do it which is yeah they volunteer they don't we don't pay them i mean we give them gifts and we thank them often but they do it because they just love the community as much as you do and want to make it a safe space thank you guys we also have merchandise quick disclaimer COVID-19 has backed up the production of many of the products. So if you would like to order merch and rep the podcast or just like some of the designs and whatnot, uh, just know that the shipping times are really delayed and there's nothing Sabrina and I can do about it because we use a manufacturer and distributor. We don't do them ourselves. I wish we were cool screen printers. I know. You can also support us by donating to our Patreon Real quick, we want to say thank you to our editors, Eric Foster and Max and your whole team, everyone at Upfire Digital. Thank you so much. And we will see you on the other side. Very spooky.